I say rather than that apostate should flourish here, I will unsheath my bowie knife and conquer or die. Great commotion in the congregation and a simultaneous burst of feeling ascending to the declaration. Now, you nasty apostates, clear out or judgment will be put to the line and righteousness to the plummet. Voices generally, go it, go it. If you say it is right, raise your hands, all hands up. Let us call upon the Lord to assist us in this and every good work. Brigham Young, Journal of Discourses, March 27, 1853. Hello, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi, and we're here today to talk about the Lion of the Lord, as Zelwyn told me not to say, Brigham <laughs> Young, as he was known historically by his people, the Lion of the Lord. Zelwyn, how are you? I'm doing great, Willie. It's a beautiful day here. Things have kind of warmed up a little bit. I don't think we're fully out of winter yet, but it's definitely a a very nice day, and I'm I I will admit that I'm enjoying the warmer weather a little bit. It can't, feels nice to not have to put on a heavy, you know, fur coat every time I go out. So what about you, Willie? How are things out your way? Well, you know, the beginning of the week, I went down to beautiful Hot Springs, Arkansas, and, you know, checked out some 19th century style medicine, which is my jam. <laughs> Lovely town. Weather was beautiful. Came home next day, promptly got a flash flood, such as living in Arkansas. It is presently in the 50s, as I record now, with a river flood warning, but getting much warmer. Spring is here. God is in heaven. It's feeling pretty good. Sounds like a plan. I saw pictures of your uh, your health spa, or whatever you want to call it, and uh, it looked like you were sailing on the Titanic. I mean, it was kind of amazing with the equipment <laughs> that you were using. So, Right. You know, uh, we need to bring back Indian clubs for exercise. <laughs> it's not just for the Iron Sheik. Uh, you know, you know. Speaking of, I, I actually, I am a unabashed proponent of you know hydrotherapy, hydropathy, if you will, and even you know, Mister John Harvey Kellogg had some of his uh, his inventions on the RMS Titanic. If if you were aware, we should do an well, episode about Kellogg. That would be a good one. Yes, dealing with all of his ideas that have even influenced the way that we eat today. Whether we right. like it or not. Whether so. we like it or not. He had some, shall we say, extremist views on some things. That's putting uh, it lightly. But. Right. We'll have to put a content warning. But but at the same time, you know, get get fiber and exercise and uh, hot and cold water can cure a lot of things. I can get behind that. I'm behind that. Like this is it. not, for legal, for legal purposes, this is not medical advice. <laughs> we'll make that very clear. Yes. Well, I, well I, for a second, I thought you were going to say you're a proponent of the Iron Sheik, but then you went a different direction. So I am a proponent of the Iron Sheik. Um, <laughs> Keeps you humble. You remember, like, we all remember when Bob Backlund was finally able to do the clubs. Classic, classic WWF, you know. <laughs> it's always a good time. Absolutely. Right. We, will do a, we should do a classic wrestling episode. If I could wedge it into the word fitly theme, I would. Because what I... I believe in revival in the churches, and I believe that we need to make wrestling great again. <laughs> I'm sure you'll work it in somehow. We'll do like the uh, the theology of wrestling or something. Right. We'll do the Ric Flair, uh, you know, tribute episode. <laughs> wrestling with the Lord as seen through Ric Flair. I like yeah, it. Yeah. You know, it's no worse than some of these movie reviews that we see come out. You know, the spirituality of Batman. We don't need that. But But if it means that I can do the spirituality of WrestleMania 10... I can. 
it'll be a good time. Right. This episode dedicated to, in the memory of Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, by the way. F, F forever. Rest in peace. F forever, indeed. Well, Willie, we should probably dig into our actual subject today, talking about Brigham Young. But first of all, why are we coming back to it? It's been about roughly 1,500 years since we Yeah, did I think that we episode. did the Mormon succession crisis. We recorded it immediately after the assassination of Joseph Smith, if that's how long ago it feels. Right. Yeah, no, it's just, it's time to get back to it. You know, you might see some, uh, you might see me pop up in a Mormon setting before too long on a certain, I guess on a certain podcast, you'll figure that out. I said, yeah, pop up in a Mormon setting, like I'm going to show up in a temple. No, <laughs> but uh, you might, you might see me involved in a Mormon dialogue before too long. So, you know, a good, a good time to get back, to get back at it. And I'm not going to announce what that is because I don't want to bury anybody's lead. I'll put it that way. Fair enough. But looking forward to that. When it comes out, we'll promote it. But yeah, but of course, Mormon history is my jam. And we've promised to get back to this for years now. Literally. And we're here. So if you go back into the Word Fitly catalog, way back in the early days, we didn't even record on microphones. We just yelled loudly and the skies (laughs) imprinted it. We did a two-parter on the life of Joseph Smith, and then we did an hour on the succession succession crisis after he dies. So who is going to run the Mormon church? We focused a bit on some of the forgotten figures, at least forgotten for most of our audience. And we said that we would come back and talk about Brigham Young at length. And and you have to. He is the most significant Latter-day Saint leader post-Joseph Smith. And while there are Mormon groups who choose not to follow him, by far, most Mormons in the world do, because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Brighamite Church. They are the people who follow Brigham out to Utah. So you cannot understand Mormonism and its development as popularly understood apart from Brigham Young. You can't understand American history apart from Brigham Young. And this is where, Zoe, and I actually think there has been some Mormon discrimination happen in American history because... The settlement of Utah is so important to the American West, especially historically with the with skirmishes and the just the sheer size of the territory and, and court cases, you know, federally involved in it. And it is just ignored by many historians. It's ignored by popular culture, too. There's a lot of good movies that could be made out of this, I suppose. There's there should be more books written. And there are plenty of books out there. But when we think of the West, you'll think of your cowboys and you'll think of you know, other things like that, or Deadwood, you know, the Dakotas and and areas like that. But Deseret, Utah, does not get the historical attention that I feel it deserves. Fair enough. Would you say then that, like for our listeners, especially today, an understanding of Brigham Young, even in broad outlines, would it help them in understanding, like how to approach Mormons, for example? Like, do we have Uh, practical applications with that? Absolutely. I think it does. Because you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, Joseph Smith taught this. Well, no, um, a lot of LDS doctrine develops after Joseph. Now, some of these things you get the genesis of in his lifetime, but it really is expounded on in the lifetime of Brigham Young, or excuse me, in the during the tenure of Brigham Young. So once Brigham Young takes control, things like polygamy become open and more clear. Uh, we're going to talk about Adam-God doctrine, what that means, uh, blood atonement. There is... Mormons do not deny that their doctrine develops, and yet we sometimes think that Joseph Smith sat down and wrote all this stuff. That's that's absolutely untrue. 
So as you're dealing with, as you're talking with Mormons and, you know, contending for, for the faith or whatever, it's important to know these things. And so we'll talk about Brigham Young and we'll talk about some things that are specific to him or the, the ban of, of blacks and the priesthood, things like that, things that don't apply to the LDS church today and yet have their roots directly in him. And so he represents a galvanization of certain positions. He represents a development of certain positions. So, you know, more than any one person who is responsible for Mormon culture as we understand it, I mean, you have to give credit to him. He's the one that brings them to Utah, and that's where they're able to develop their own customs, their own folklore, everything. It comes after him and in his era predominantly. So I think to understand Utah Mormons, you have to understand Brigham Young. To understand their fortress mentality, which I think is perfectly justified, frankly, um, the way they build their communities and what they went through, it absolutely makes sense. You have to understand, one, you have to go back and listen to the Joseph Smith episodes <laughs> to see how we got right. here, uh, to see what they sort of suffered in Missouri and Illinois and, and Ohio, but Ohio is a, a tricky one. And then we're going to talk about what they deal with as they go out west. So you have to understand this period to understand why Utah is the way it is. And I don't right. mean that in a negative. I mean, I, I feel like I could very comfortably live out there, even though I, they would treat me as a, they would treat me as a Gentile, but that's fine. You'd be okay with that. Yeah. I'm an English man in the Missouri Senate. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, we're already Gentiles as it were. Right. Um, well, just a quick question before we get into talking about Brigham specifically then. Would you say that, I mean, I know that in the past, like when we were dealing with the, the tensions in Illinois and stuff like that, and a lot of the problems that were coming up between Mormons and the, and the rest of their neighbors kind of a thing, would you say that a lot of the reputation that Mormons get comes from the time of Brigham Young? I mean, I'm thinking like, for example, uh, Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, for example, writing Sherlock Holmes with a specifically kind of anti-Mormon slant in one of his stories. Yeah, well, by that time, they're already out there. Yeah, so yeah, certainly what he's talking about. But there are accusations against the Mormons that happen before Brigham Young. Right. And they start to get a reputation. Like, I'll give you an example. I was trying to find some early LCMS interactions with Mormons. Couldn't find much. But I did find a quote from Walter. And it was in German. And, it ba and, and basically, he's making an argument about when the state can enforce religious laws or stop certain religious expressions. And he goes, an example is the Mormons. They were kicked out of wherever because of their thievery. And so the government <laughs> is justified in suppressing that religion for that reason. All so right. even though the, even these things had reached somebody like CFW Walther, which I think is a little bit of an unfair, but that, that even by the mid 1800s, or little, it's late 1800s when he's writing this, that perception had stuck there, and he tied it directly to their early days in like Missouri and Illinois. Sure. And it was a little bit disturbing to see him use that as a, you know, because of their thievery, it's okay, the government can do what they want. Like, hope they never accuse us of anything, CF. <laughs> hope it never comes to, you know, where we are now or anything. Yeah. <laughs> there could be no un unintended consequences from that. <laughs> You know, uh, and really Mormonism, and especially in Brigham Young's day, uh, because they're going to be run out by state militias in Joseph's day. It's right. Now they're going to come up against the federal government in Brigham Young's day. And it's really hard for me 
you know, to not be like based, you know, <laughs> because, <laughs> because they're out there trying to do their own thing, trying to live their own life. And it's going to get very complicated because there are deaths involved and there is bloodshed. I understand that. I'm not trying to make light of that, but you know, I, I'm very hesitant on the whole, let's send in federal agents to destroy people because they're different or because they're weird. Now, I know some of our audience will be surprised to hear me say that or not like that I say that, but I still stand on that to a degree. You know, you can't be, we, we, it's just, I don't want to see that encouraged. Right. I don't, I don't, that's uh that's because yeah, that doesn't set nasty precedents in American history either. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so we're going to talk about a people who are about self-determination and what we're going to struggle with here as we discuss it is the fact that Brigham Young is controversial in American history. And I think for some Mormons, he's controversial because of some of his views and some of his attitudes. My job is to not judge based on that. It just is what it is. And, and to kind of go from there, they'll say, well, he's a, he's a charismatic cult leader who led his people to, a." you know, to free American land or to cheap American land. That's, that's disturbing. Like, okay, do you really want to play this game? Missouri said it. <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> well, because that part of it is not the weird part. This is what every religious group was doing in America. This is why they were coming to America in the 19th century to be free, to live alone and to build their own communities. As that's I the said- fact. As I sit here in North Dakota, you know, the product of <laughs> right. homesteading. Well, and and I, I hear Lutherans today like, we need to build Lutheran communities. And, we you know, we need to go out and buy land and build up a Lutheran society. Like, well, we, we did try it. And I'm not saying don't try it, but you're not doing anything that, the, that Brigham Young wasn't doing, too. So at least recognize that you agree with them on that principle, <laughs> that you want to build Zion out there. Just be honest about it. Zion on the Mississippi, as it were. Right. But... Well, we should probably start talking about Brigham himself then. So do you want to give us, like, let's start with his early life, not Wikipedia style, but... <laughs> well, you won't find any of that in him. But but just kind of set us up for understanding who Brigham is and where he comes from. Yeah, so Brigham Young is going to be born to a large family in Vermont. Very early, he moves, they move to upstate New York, um, and, he, and they basically sort of, you know, move again sort of around New York. His mother contracts tuberculosis when he's in his teens. After she dies, they move to Tyrone, New York. His father remarries a widow who has several children. So at 16, he's out of the house. He's going to apprentice uh, as a carpenter, glazer, painter. I mean, he's going to work um, that kind of work. So he is going to be a skilled laborer, which is important. We'll come to that. And so this is he's, he's got that kind of itinerant sort of work happening. Um, he loses his apprenticeship uh, due, a, due an economic downturn in 1819, the Panic of 1819. And so 1824, he marries Miriam Works, and that's going to be his first wife. And at this point, everybody's like, ha, 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 first wife. Well, okay, we're not to polygamy yet, all right? Uh, that's going to come way late in the episode. So marries his first wife. He's an interesting guy uh, spiritually because... He's a tobacco chewer, doesn't drink alcohol, but refuses to sign a temperance pledge because he doesn't want to be bound to it. Okay. <laughs> so he, he wants to be temperate, but he but he feels like he doesn't want anything to bind his liberty, so he's not going to sign a temperance pledge. That's kind of funny. Um, he joins the Methodist Church also in the 1820s, 
and and there's a very interesting thing here. It's the Reformed Methodist Church, but you're going to hear Reformed Methodist and think Calvinist. I don't think that's actually that Reformed Methodist. It's this is a different one. Um, so a Methodist offshoot. Brigham's going to early on. He's going to insist that he is not baptized by sprinkling. He wants to be baptized by immersion, and that's going to be very important because he's eventually going to con- to encounter a group of Mormon missionaries, and he's going to see in the Mormon Church things that he's already um, comfortable with. If it's the Reformed Methodist Church that we think it is, or that I think it is, they're going to be open to charismatic gifts, for example, like the early Mormons are. And he's going to encounter Mormons who are insisting on baptism by immersion. Remember, these restoration movements are wanting to go back to the early church, and they believe that the early church only practiced immersion. And that's common to pretty much every restorationist group that I know. Because you can use restorationists to refer to the Mormons, but you can also use it, say, like the Stone Campbell restorationists, the Churches of Christ. So he's already really primed to be, to accept some of the Mormon Mormon doctrine, Mormon things. Well, well, let me ask this question, though, because I know that this time period, and we've talked about this like in the Joseph episode, especially his early life episode, this was a time where there was a lot of religious turmoil, stuff like that, where it was not yeah. uncommon for people to kind of bounce back and forth between things. Yeah, and that's an excellent point. Um, and that's really happening a lot in upstate New York. You've got revivals going on, your second great awakening period, all kinds of new doctrines, all kinds of new movements. And then, yeah, people bouncing from church to church. Well, I'm convinced the Presbyterians are wrong. I'm going to go Methodist. Nope, the Methodists are too wacky. I'm going to go Baptist, things like that. Thankfully, we don't have that today. <laughs> <laughs> well, did did Brigham go through that, or did he just kind of end up in the Methodists and stay there till he became, he became a Mormon? I guess is my question. He's going to do the the Methodist. Uh, well, he's going to have a bit of a stop off. So when he's in Minden, New York, in the eighteen late eighteen twenties, he's going to encounter Heber Kimball, who is an LDS member. And so he goes. He works at a sawmill. He's doing some odd jobs. He effectively, you know, he essentially rather uh, leaves the Methodist Church. And he is a, I don't know what you'd want to call it. He's unaffiliated, I guess you'd say. And it seems as if Brigham Young is very interested in who has authority. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that who possesses true authority? He He's already beginning to see there needs to be an institutional church. And the institutional church will have authority. To whom does Jesus give the keys? A language that we would use. Right. And language that the Mormons will use too, but they're going to use keys a bit differently than we will. Sure. Um, but who, who has true authority? And so, yeah, he becomes soured with the Methodists or, or his flame dies out. Maybe we could say that. And so he's looking now he's looking for something. He's looking for true authority. He's looking for legitimacy. And as we're coming to the end of this first segment, you know, that's something that we bump into a lot too. And I think that every Christian who isn't just like, a, I'm going to sit in a hole and read my Bible alone, is kind of looking for that too. Where is the true church found and by what authority? We would tend to lean more toward doctrinal authority, that where true doctrine is, there is authority. Roman Catholics would say, no, where the true hierarchy is, there is authority. And I think that Mormons, if we're honest, would be that way too, because they believe that true doctrine was restored, but part of their true doctrine is a church hierarchy that is revealed. Although, if we're being fair, there are Lutherans among us who would kind of lean that way, too, towards a more like, yeah. institutional, and, and, Episcopal kind of a... But I think know. we need to be fair here that this it's, it is a little bit odd to try to separate government from doctrine 
when most churches would believe that the Bible does teach a certain polity, and that would make right. it doctrinal. Right. We officially don't, and yet do bind people to Walther's church and ministry. That's another episode, though. <laughs> that's another, but that is the truth, though, is it not? Right, right. But that's yeah. more of a voluntary agreement. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's a tricky thing when talking about polity and authority, but these are not insignificant questions. And these are questions I think every Christian needs to wrestle with. If God has given authority and the office of the keys and the power of the keys to a certain church, then you ought to join it. <laughs> right? Sure. That's that's a fair that's a fair question I believe I believe it's a fair question that any Christian could ask, and that's the point that Brigham Young is at. He he is for whatever reason disenchanted by the Methodists, and maybe it's just because of I mean the guy's life has been hard, and he's bounced around, he's suffered setback after setback, but he is intensely interested in religion, but unsatisfied. But we're going to talk about where he finds satisfaction here right after the break. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi. We're talking about the American Moses, <laughs> Brigham Young. I'm going to keep doing salacious titles until Zelwyn rage quits the podcast. It's not so much that I'm going to rage quit, it's that I'm just going to, I don't know, edit you out or something. Edit me I'm out. Not sure. You're going to bleep me, make me think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, don't even, we don't even know what we're going to call this episode at this point. But remember, ed, I, can ed, I can edit too. Oh, I know. <laughs> we're debating. Know. We're debating who holds the keys to the church in this podcast right now, but we don't debate who holds the keys to word fitly spoken. That is Mister Zelwyn, the Adonis Heidi. I mean, he who edits controls the world. That's right. Well, all right. Right. So we left. We left. Um, we left Brigham without a church home, <laughs> and so now somewhere in the uh, early eighteen thirty. He is given a copy of the Book of Mormon, and so he's going to read it. Uh, he's going to very quickly encounter some Latter-day Saint missionaries. And remember, this is all happening in New York. Missionaries are coming from Pennsylvania, all around. But he's going to read the Book of Mormon, and he's really going to become to believe what the church teaches. Now, this is, down to this day, how the church predominantly converts people. And I find that very interesting. Their methodology hasn't changed that much. Now, they're much more into apologetics and evidentialist apologetics and things like that. But you take all that away from Mormonism, and at the heart of it, and I think they would agree, is a testimony of the truth of the Book of Mormon. 
So you will read the Book of Mormon, and the Spirit will testify to your heart whether it's true or not. And that's essentially how they did it in the early days, too. Here's the story of the Book of Mormon, and read it and let and be open to the truth of it. Yeah, I mean, isn't, I mean, like you say, when in my encounters with Mormons and stuff like that, or just like you hear about encounters with Mormonism, yeah, it's very much a like read this and be convinced kind of a thing, you know, open your, your yeah. heart to it and see well, that it's true kind of a thing. And one of the interesting things is, so I hear ex-Mormons predominantly, but some anti-Mormons say that Mormons hide their history. And I just don't think that's true. At least it's not been true in my lifetime. And I can go back even into the 70s and stuff and the 80s when they're talking about seer stones and translation, stuff like that that was allegedly hidden. But what I do find is like a Mormon comes to your door and they bump into someone like me who actually wants to talk to them about what they believe and their history of it. And they really largely don't know their history. And you can use their history against them. That's why a lot of guys use it as a bludgeon. I think that that it's a good door to talk to them about religious things, if sure. I can put it that way. I'm willing to sit down and listen to them, but they're kind of trained. They're trained not to have these conversations, I think. <laughs> and so, you know, you can tell that they've got a series of questions that they have. And and but at the heart of it is, hey, read this, and it's and it's true. That's kind of what it gets to. It's going to be a testimony about the Book of Mormon. Remember. For the LDS, the Bible is true insofar as it's translated correctly. The Book of Mormon is is translated correctly. Ergo, this is where you should be. And so it was the same in Brigham Young's day. And, and he is convinced of it. And so on April 14th, 1832, he's baptized by Eliezer Miller and into what was then known as the Church of Christ. A uh, much simpler name then. Now they're the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints but you got to spell it correctly and put the hyphen in and watch your capitalization. Yeah. Not that that happens with any other body either, but no, 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 that would never happen. (laughs) So, so, you know, more of uh, the people that he are around, uh, that he's around end up baptized too. So he and some acquaintances and friends uh, convert together and he really begins uh, to spread the gospel, uh, excuse me, to spread the restored gospel, the Mormon, what the Mormons call the restored gospel. Right. I've got to be careful here. Sometimes I'm, so I'm reading Mormon history. I'm using Mormon terms. So restored gospel is what I'm talking about here. The, what they call the restored gospel. He right. begins spreading the message of the Book of Mormon there. Lest yeah, anybody I, accuse me of something. <laughs> so, I mean, I, and I think the fairest way of putting it is, is we're trying to present it as they would understand it. Like try to give a fair presentation yeah. of what is happening yeah. So that then we can talk about the issues. I if mean, I'm if I'm not being fair, I don't deserve fairness myself. It's a good quote. Right. And I will steal it. And and I'm not going to tell you who it's attributed to. <laughs> but he's a good Scott, so we'll leave it at that. You know, so he's going to go down to Ohio eventually and meet with Joseph Smith. And they are going to become rather close. And we're not going to spend an inordinate amount of time on the death of Joseph and everything and the succession crisis because we've got hours on that. You can go listen. He's going to go down to Ohio, go down to Kirtland, become you know, really entrenched in the Latter-day Saint movement. All right. So by 1833, he's moved to Ohio. And his wife has died. Uh, his first wife has died. And he's going to marry another, uh, a Mary Ann Angle by then. And so he's preaching. So he's going to preach more and more, eventually be sent on a mission. 
He's going to travel to Missouri. He's eventually going to travel to England. He's going to be one of the people who is in the Hebrew classes at Kirtland because one of the early things about the Mormons, especially Joseph Smith, was they are very big on languages. So it's not all seer stones and the Urim and Thummim. You know, they bring an actual Hebrew teacher in to teach them languages. They legitimately want to be an educated body. And they legitimately believe that they're going to be able to translate these old documents and find biblical things in them. They, they truly believe in this. The translation process early on is much more traditional translation. Sure. Well, let me let me ask you this question, though, Willie, mm-hmm. uh, because we've, we've gone from Brigham being kind of just a convert to where we're eventually going to see him leading the Mormons by the time Joseph dies. Correct. Okay. So was it his connection with Joseph that kind of rocketed him up to this position? Was there something else that kind of, how did he go from nobody to, you know, the, the top dog in that period of time? So early on when he meets Joseph Smith, and keep in mind, this is a very different Mormonism from what you have today. It's visionary. It's charismatic. Brigham Young is a tongue speaker. He sees someone speaking in tongues and he speaks tongues around Joseph Smith. He is seen as a very spiritual, a man of great spiritual power very early on. Okay. This is the Kirtland, Ohio era. So they're claiming to see there's mass visions of angels flying around the temple, things like that. He is seen as someone with particular zeal and particular power, for lack of a better term. And so he is going to quickly rise up. I, I don't think this is a cronyism thing. He's a man seen. He's a man who is seen as having particular gifts. So by May 1835, he is ordained a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, one of the first twelve of the Twelve Apostles in Mormonism. Uh, and then he's sent to New York to go get converts. And so he is a, he is going to be uh, receiving what they claim is divine revelation. He is part of the dedication of the Kirtland Temple at the time. So very, very quickly after his conversion, within a few years, he's risen up. Um, his conversion is legitimate. I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way. It is a sincere conversion because he goes from a kind of nominal Methodist to a very zealous restorationist. He is going to go around preaching and proclaiming the Book of Mormon and its doctrines and so a correlator that, remember, the Book of Mormon is a testimony of what happens uh, to an ancient people and then Jesus visiting them and preaching the gospel to them. Uh, the restored gospel is different. The restored gospel is that authority given to Joseph Smith and then given to the Church of Christ on earth as restored in him to forgive sins, to baptize, things like that, to receive revelation. So the two are intensely connected, but he is going about preaching that the church has been restored. Here's the Book of Mormon that testifies to that. And here's the prophet here. He he becomes a sincere believer in this. And, sure, and by the early 1840s, he's president of the 12 apostles. But what happens in between all that is, so he's going to go on these missions, New York and New England. He's going to convert some people. Uh, he's going to bring them down to Ohio to Kirtland, the Kirtland Safety Society is going to fail, and they've got to get out of town pretty quick. They end up in in Missouri, and then at that point, he's president of the Twelve. He's apostle, so they send people from Missouri to Illinois, and then he's going to spend a year in England. Okay, so he's going to bounce around. He's really going to be the guy early on that's going to go out and get people, and at that time, he's calling them to come to Missouri or come to Illinois. 
if they can. And I think that's going to be very important to then when they go out west to Utah, calling them out there. There's been really a gathering that you don't really see in Mormonism today where it's, yeah, they would always have, they understood they would have converts who wouldn't gather, but there is this big push to convert to the restored gospel and to gather in the Americas to await the millennial kingdom and the second coming. Sure. Well now, okay. So we got them. We're up to Illinois, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and of course, go back, listen to the previous episodes. We talked about all the things that happened in Illinois, especially with, let's say the death of Joseph. Now we should probably move forward then to talking about when Brigham Young kind of takes the reins and actually like wants to go out to Utah. So what, what what starts that? You know, why does he come to this conclusion? You know, how does how does that begin to progress? Sure. Okay. So, if you want to hear more about the polygamy stuff, we're going to do a whole episode dedicated to Mormon doctrine, the development of that. It appears that polygamy comes up in Nauvoo. Um, the Mormons are not. That's in Illinois. The Mormons are not really welcome wherever they go. The debate is: Hey, why is Joseph Smith killed? Joseph and his brother, why are they killed? Did it have to do with polygamy? Did it have to do with this? Go listen to the Joseph Smith episodes if you want a a fuller take on that. But Joseph's going to be killed, and then you're going to have the succession crisis. At that time, Young is out east in the eastern states when all this is going on, and it's going to lead to the succession crisis, yada, yada, yada. But the majority end up following Young. Young claims that he has leadership. People back him. Again, whole episode on that if you want to really see. Uh, so we're not going to talk about the separate things. So anyway, there's conflict in Nauvoo, and it's not going to be good. They can't really settle. Uh, the government's still after them. The government wants them gone. Militias want them gone. They can't go to Missouri still. Technically, there's an extermination order on Mormons until the 70s in the state of Missouri, <laughs> and 1970s. He sees that his people need a safe place. It's not going to be Illinois. Nauvoo, Illinois, remember, rivals Chicago for size at the time. That makes the government nervous. We're going to go out to Salt Lake Valley, uh, which isn't even part of America then. <laughs> and we are going to um, we're going to make a place. They settle in Nebraska at winter quarters in the mid-1840s and then, and then head on out to Great Salt Lake. By the time they get out there, we fought a war with Mexico and it's ours. So, you know, so good. And... <laughs> There's the famous, you know, he's actually asked why to do it. And he's like, look, I'm I'm trying to paraphrase him here, but it's basically everywhere we've gone, it's been rough, but God told me to go here and we're going to prosper here. This is the place. This is the place we're going to go. So he considers it the place God's telling him to go. And they have, they've been kicked out everywhere they've went. Violence has befallen them. And depending on which side of the argument you want to come on, oh, the Mormons had it coming. The Mormons didn't have it coming. Look, Hansville Massacre, I don't care which side of that you're on the Missouri militiamen killed women and children. And that's not cool. They killed Mormon women and children. So this fortress mentality is something that I can understand. Theology aside. And now do I think that God told Brigham to go there? No, but that is to answer your question, why they went out there. Yeah. And, and, And to be fair, they did go out there and prosper, but it wasn't easy. Well, and that was actually going to be kind of my next question because as as much as I know about, like, especially the movement out to Utah, it was a particularly rough journey. And didn't didn't Brigham make the journey like two or three times too, like yeah. going back and forth, kind of a thing. 
Right. And yeah, because they're going to try to get people to um, to come out and you got to convince people. Right. Right. <laughs> right. He names Salt Lake City. He organizes the city. I mean, this is where this is where you see the weakness of Joseph Smith as an organizer and the strength of Brigham Young. Joseph Smith largely failed at his earthly endeavors because, you know, uh, the Kirtland Safety Society fails. His attempts at building communities fail. I don't see in him the great business organizer that Brigham Young is. But Brigham Young goes out there, founds the city, and organizes it immediately. I mean, he, he divides it into lots. He does all kinds of stuff. There's even rebaptisms. It's a little strange. But he, he plans the city. He plans it with modern-sized roads. It's kind of, it's very prescient in what he's trying to do. He's hmm. very forward-thinking. Uh, you know, but, but he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a very gifted craftsman, and I think that that helped. I think what he learned in building buildings and designing things, I think that that all helped in him organizing the city. He's a very careful planner and very deliberate. And he wants his, he wants his society to be well-planned and self-sufficient, which is actually comes from Joseph Smith, this idea of collective living. The difference is um, Brigham Young seemed to have the skills and the vision to make it happen. Okay. Here's another question then, since you're talking about his organizational skills, a common trope, if you will, about yeah. Brigham is that he is something of a, a dictator, an autocrat. Is that is that founded or not? Well, let me clear up one thing, too. I just want to say that when he's traveling back and forth, I'm sorry, I didn't answer that clearly. He's traveling back to Nebraska, from Nebraska to Salt Lake. So he's sure. not really. Yeah. Anyway, is he a dictator? Yeah, I think he is an autocrat, uh, but the church, but that is how the church is designed. Okay. And he is leading a what they saw as a kingdom on earth. Now he is going to have people under him that works. There are people other people with authority, but the buck stops at Brigham Young. And I think that that's absolutely true. Uh nothing really happens apart from his say so. And when people are going against him, they are going to suffer consequences for that, even if it's just excommunication. Sure. Uh, that will happen. And you, you, this is something that I find very interesting in Mormonism, and you find it early in the movement, and you find it in the, in Brigham Young, too. People would be excommunicated and rebaptized all the time. W.W. W. Phelps, for example, the famous hymn writer who wrote, uh, Mormon hymn writer who wrote, like, Praise to the Man, and If You Could Hide a Kolob, you know, some of these really distinctive Mormon songs. He takes a plural wife without the permission of Brigham Young, because at this time, hey, you're not supposed to be doing that. You know, it's not been made clear. And he's excommunicated for it for like two days and then brought back in and rebaptized back into the church. So you okay. see this excommunication rebaptism thing all the time. And and that is part of who has authority because you did it without my authority. You are now out. And I think he did that to Phelps just to make a point, but whatever. Sure. So so are you saying then that the the stereotype of him as the, you know, the, the autocrat is well-founded or is there, I mean, how much of it is hyperbole? How much of it is real? I guess is my question. Well, I think it depends on, and I think you can read him both ways. There's no question that he has high authority. Right. And he has both political, I mean, legitimate political authority because he is going to be named governor of the Utah territory in the 1850s. So he has legitimate political authority and his religious authority as far as his followers go, are unquestioned. The question, the debate is, was he a benevolent dictator or not? Right. <laughs> and I think that depends on which side of Brigham Young you're on. Hmm. 
I think there's evidence that he was willing to let other people take the fall for things like the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Uh, people, that's the big debate. You know, um, these people were American settlers were killed by what they claimed were Indians. And the historical record seems to think that they were killed by Mormons at the behest of Brigham Young. So that's where it gets very murky. You know, was he just this very bloody sending out people to kill people kind of thing? Or was he a very kind man? Was he only taking these extreme measures to protect his people? That's the historical debate. Sure. But I don't think you can come to any conclusion without at least agreeing that he was a very powerful autocrat. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, even like you say, even if it comes down to he was using it for the benefit of his own, that doesn't change the fact that he is taking some pretty hard measures on his own authority kind of a thing. So yeah, you can, 100%. You can, you can have it both ways is what I'm saying. Right. <laughs> well, we've just now gone to Utah, but we've got to take our next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Here now we're talking about the Deseret. We're talking about Brigham Young. We're talking about all kinds of fun stuff. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Let's see where, how far we can get into American history here. So, <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're heading out to Utah. And this is the this is really the era that Mormons, you know, commemorate, you know, as uh, the pioneers. Okay. This is the pioneer era. And... 1847, you know, you have the really big push out west. Travel conditions are not good, but they're all going to come. I mean, you have even the famous handcart pioneers. People are literally by hand pulling their carts and things like that. So you've got this giant territory that Brigham wants to establish, the nation of Deseret. And eventually that's going to evolve into the state of Utah. But before that, it's the Utah Territory, which is created in 1850. And uh, Brigham Young is going to be governor of that. And he's appointed in 1851. And so he's got a lot of things to do. He has to deal with Indians, organize a militia. They're going to build roads, bridges. The Transcontinental Railroad is going to be involved in this. Uh, Brigham wants his city to be self-sufficient, but he also wants the territory to be a very important hub because he understands the importance of bringing that income into the territory. Well, let me ask this question, though. So, okay, The Mormons go out to Utah because of, let's say, persecution, just, I mean, to put it in a simple term. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody really accepts them. They can't really find anywhere. How does Utah end up becoming a territory? (laughs) You would think that they didn't want anything to do with the Mormons. How does does, does that come about? Well, through the Mexican-American War, we get the territory. 
Okay. Uh, you have a ton of Mormons out there. What are they going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it's it's the yeah. prudent thing to do. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like uh, because they're going to send somebody out to replace him after the in 1858 after the Utah War. You know, he's not going to last. Well, he lasts a few years, but that's a really hard territory to govern if you're not a Mormon. <laughs> Well, now, okay, let's not bury the lead, though. What do you mean by the Utah War? All right. This is Buchanan's blunder. Okay, this is this is where the U.S. government tries to fight a war uh, with the Mormons for the Utah Territory. So it lasts about a year, a little over a year, May 1857 to July 1858. Uh, there are, you know, some deaths here, but it's not, it's not major, uh, mostly civilians, unfortunately. And this is a war over polygamy and slavery and self-government. And so they're going to fight it. James Buchanan's president. It just doesn't, it doesn't turn out well. So without going into, we could do a whole episode just on that, but here's what happens. So the newspapers are writing everything. The Mormons are portrayed as just these fanatics out there that are shooting the army every time they come to try to civilize them. So they've got governor coming now. He's placed in office and the whole Utah war is just an embarrassment for President Buchanan. So he does not officially notify Brigham Young that he's being replaced, number one. Okay. So Cumming just kind of shows up. Hey, I'm the <laughs> governor now. So it didn't go well. He sends the, the troops out, the expedition out way too late. He does not investigate whether or not Utah's, Utahns are disloyal to the United States. And he doesn't supply the troops. And the people of the expedition. So, <laughs> so there's no communication, there's no supplies, and it's just, it's just, it's just not good. How did he expect to win this war? Well, we all know what Andrew Jackson said about James Buchanan. So, yeah, you, it, it's <laughs> you know, so it just doesn't, it doesn't do well. But the Utah War is kind of the beginning of the end for the the Mormon fortress, as it were. Gentiles are going to come in after that. And the federal government is going to dominate. The Transcontinental Railroad comes in in 1869, right? It's completed then. So you're going to have Gentiles, as they would call them, non-Mormons coming in. And you're going to have conflicts between Mormons and the government. It's going to be mostly about uh, polygamy. That's going to go on for the next few decades until 1896. And really, this isn't going to be resolved until the early 1900s. Because there's even the Smoot hearings, which is saying, hey, can a Mormon even hold a government office, elected or not? So, uh, But the Utah War is a blunder because they think they're going to be able to go in and pacify the Mormons, and they're just not. But it does end with Brigham Young stepping down, but he's still, you know, a very, uh, I mean, he's still the head of the, of the Mormon church. So right. what can you do? Right. And, you know, this whole war is tied up into slavery because Young supports slavery and wanted to actually legalize it and things like that in the territory. So it all it's all tied up in the political debates of the day. So it's not all about religion at the time. It's the slavery thing, federal sovereignty versus state sovereignty, religious sovereignty, things like that. That's well, why the Utah War is fought. To be fair, most wars that are supposedly about religion in history – are never almost never exclusively religious questions. I mean, even you have like the European wars 
where they have those conflicts, there was a lot of political issues at work in those as well. So absolutely, we don't. I mean, that that's sometimes a slur that is you know spread against you know just religion in general. Like, oh, it just it causes all these wars. Well, no, I mean, there's a lot more to it than that. But that's right. just a side note. So yeah, okay. But so he's he's no longer governor, and he is still the head of the church. I mean, we got to be coming up towards the end of his life, right? Because when, when does he die? And- well, he's no longer governor in 1858. He lives until 1877. And, you know, really, time's not going to permit us to go into mountain meadows and things like that. That'll be that'll be a discussion for another time. You know, his legacy is going to be tarnished a little bit in history books because of the war, uh, because of his failure to uh, create the state of Deseret, the Compromise of 1850, which gives you the Utah Territory. That's why he's governor. So Utah war happens. So that's done. You know, a lot of the controversial stuff is all around that time. So that's when you get Mountain Meadows, uh, you know, the, the murder of the, of the settlers coming through, things like that. He is going to still, though, be leading his people throughout, throughout that time. And so he's got another 19 years left. Mormon doctrine is going to continue to develop a bit. Brigham Young, it's clear to see where he stood on stuff. And I suppose we could talk about that. But parallel to his development of society is his development of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so he is going to go about building temples in the Utah Territory, uh, which is going to become very important. Now, of course, the Salt Lake Temple, is it's just the groundbreaking that happens in 1853. But he sees construction of the Salt Lake Tabernacle temples elsewhere in Utah and what's called the endowment house, which is a where they did the temple ordinances until the temple was was built. Now, at this point, you're going, hey, Willie, what, what are you talking about? What's a temple here? Are they sacrificing animals? No. This is where the Mormons will go and they have a temple in Kirtland and they have a temple in Nauvoo, but the temple in Kirtland is a little bit different. It's a multi-purpose building. Nauvoo is as well, but the Nauvoo Temple is going to be closer to the temples that we'll see in Utah. And the temple model in Utah is kind of what we see today, where you know, you're going to go in and they have these semi-secret w- rituals called endowments, whereby you know they're renewing their covenants with God. It's where they're sealed forever as married couples. It's where baptisms for the dead happen. That's why these temples are built, for these ordinances. And this is this is unique to Mormonism, you know, the sealing forever so that you'll be married even in the afterlife, the proxy baptisms, things like that. Uh, Brigham Young is the great temple builder. He really sets the the course for this. Although Joseph develops it, um, Brigham Young is the one who really spreads it and solidifies it. Now, remind me again, what do they call the uh, the more local me- meeting houses? Is that what they're yeah. called? Okay. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what you would think of uh, closer to a, you know, a, a typical church, right? But my my question with the meeting houses is: is that an institution that starts in his time as well, or is he just building temples? Uh, oh, no, well, you're going to have the meeting houses, or at least some form of that. I mean, early on, it's going to be house churches. Okay. Um, it's like any, it's like any in this. It's like any group that develops. You kind of start meeting where you can. Right. And then you get the established church buildings. But even in the Kirtland days and in the Nauvoo days, a lot of times they're just meeting outside. Okay. Or meeting like in a room in the temple. You know, like I said, they're multi, they're more multi-purpose then. 
the blueprint for the meeting houses, I think, comes a little bit later because they're all pretty – well, I know it does because they're all standardized now. And what I find interesting is, so in the early days, you might meet wherever you could, meet in a barn, meet in a tree stump, bring a blanket, sit down. Nowadays, everything really is rather cookie cutter in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One of the things they're going to accuse even Brigham of, and they accuse the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints of down to this day, is just amassing wealth. So Brigham Young has a nice house, and Salt Lake City is a nice city in its day and today. And they'll say, well, you know, the church is hoarding all this money to make themselves rich. I actually am not sure if that's true. Now, with Brigham, what they're going to say is, well, he let the handcart pioneers starve and he let people starve while he's trucking in tobacco and other stuff for himself. You know, there's all these accusations. But you have that everywhere. There's a chief leader at the top. Right. You know, Bishop Stephan has entered the chat. <laughs> but today, you know, I think, I guess... Maybe I'm just not unsettled by them having $4 billion, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> and this is why I talk about the cookie-cutter approach, and you talk about top-down leadership. Well, it's not been too long ago that if you started a new Mormon church or Mormon meeting house, you would have to pay to build your own building like we do in our churches. You know, right. If we want to start a new church, members are going to have to pony up. Right. Well, nowadays, the denomination pays for construction of new meeting houses. You get enough people, you, you have a need for it, they will build a new church. Now, I, they probably have the same problem we do with closing them. <laughs> right, right. But. It's probably harder to close than to open, but they do take a lot of that money and they put it into storehouses you know, to feed the hungry, charitable work, and building churches. Or building meeting houses, I, I should say more properly. And I think that you saw this even down to Brigham State. You know, they are paying for the building of the temples. They're paying for the building of of that. Now they are taking donations. They have to sometimes like, especially in the Nauvoo temple that Joseph Smith's era is my expertise more than anything. So in Joseph Smith's era, they're building the Nauvoo temple and they would take say one day in seven or excuse me, one day in 10 and would go and work on the temple members would and wouldn't be paid, but some would. So the skilled craftsmen, for example, the people who built the sunstones on the temple, they were actually, as I understand, compensated for their work. So that, and that was coming from funds, you know, given to the, to the church and then, and then distributed. So from Brigham Young's day, I say all that to say this, there has been this effort at top-down organization and this idea that funds would go up, but then would be redistributed down and, you know, say what you want about them. I think it's kind of cool that they can at least fund the building of churches. Well, meeting I houses. Mean, you know, I mean, yeah. there's certainly something to be said for that. I mean, would that we could do the same. You know, I mean, we even have troubles with, you know, funding our missionaries and stuff like that. So it would be nice to have more of an endowment to be able to take care of many of these things as they do. But, okay, so as we're coming to the end of the episode then, and we're kind of dealing with, I mean, we're not going to be able to get to the, the theology of of Brigham at this point, that'll have to be saved for another episode. But I mean, is there anything else that we need to cover about him? I mean, do you want to talk about his legacy in general, kind of how he's viewed even by the Mormons today? I mean, how, how do you want to, how do you want to wrap up our discussion of, of Brigham, Willie? Sure. So Brigham Young is controversial to some Mormons today because of his views on race and on slavery. I think some are embarrassed by that. Brigham Young is a man of his time. 
So I'm not going to come down upon that. And we'll talk about polygamy more once we do the theology episode. That's where it's more proper. But this is where he tends to be. Some Mormons are uncomfortable with his views on race as if he's any different than any other white guy of his day. But, but, but the fact is he does put a ban on blacks holding the priesthood that is not suspended, you know, until well into the 1900s. And that's always been a thing. One of our critiques of Mormonism is, Hey, this was the doctrine given on high to your prophet from God who says, this is just the way it is. And then you guys could just change it. That's one of the things that concerns us about Mormonism. And I think that it's disturbing to some Mormons, too, for two reasons. One, a changing of revelation, what they consider to be divine revelation. And then two, you know, something that they consider hateful. Uh, doctrines like blood atonement, that some people's sins are so bad they can only be atoned for by the shedding of their blood, which seems to be something that Brigham Young taught. That's a little bit embarrassing to, to some modern Mormons. Polygamy itself is embarrassing to some modern Mormons. and I And again, I can't speak to them. So I think his legacy is one that divides some Mormons. And of course, on those doctrines, we have issues with those too, because we have a completely different understanding of the priesthood. Uh, we have a, a different understanding of marriage as well. So we're obviously going to reject those just on doctrinal grounds, whether right. they change it or not. Right. But even the idea of continuing revelation is, is problematic for us. And so he is very much a controversial character in American history. And, you know, even for us, does he order the murder of these settlers? That will be an issue, right? So what what do we make of that? Do we judge him more harshly because he's he is a religious leader? That's where it's very hard for us to look at it because we are pastors in the in a Christian church, and so for us to look at him as to someone that we say is not you know a true teacher, not a true prophet, we would have to say that. But as a leader of his people, can we at least say you know he he really? took extreme measures to protect his people. And what he's able to do in the Utah territory is legitimately impressive. That's a hard thing for us to say because we would not consider him a prophet. We would not consider him even close to being Orthodox with his views on uh, Adam God doctrine, you know, God being Adam, things like that, man becoming God. So he's certainly controversial for us and more controversial even than Joseph Smith because he lives longer and his doctrine is much more easily spelled out. Uh, Joseph Smith d- dies shortly after the King Follett Discourse, where he begins to talk about men becoming gods. Now, you do have the Book of Abraham in Joseph's time, which is talking about Kolob, the star closest to where God lives, and God's plurality of gods, things like that. So you have that in Joseph's time. But all of the really controversial Mormon doctrines, even polygamy, while those things are present in Joseph's day, are not fully orbed until Brigham Young. So all of the things all of the really bizarre things that we tend to think of stereotypically with Mormonism come from the Brigham Young era. And so he is the man who galvanizes Mormonism, who, whether right or wrong, establishes how everybody will view Mormonism down to this day. On the other side of that, he is a great settler of the West. And we would not have... Salt Lake City, we would not have the Utah Territory settled the way it was if it wasn't for him. Salt Lake City would not be the, you know, kind of the shining city that it is today if it were not for him. And so he is doing the pioneer work that many others did, but because of the religious element to it, it's much more difficult to talk about and, and difficult to talk about objectively. Sure. For sure. historians, for historians, not for us. 
Right, right. Okay, well, maybe as a last question then, and this is just kind of an overview of like, you know, up to, to the present day, would it be fair to say that Brigham shapes Mormonism in such a fundamental way that it, even for what will come after him, like it won't be as influential. Does that make sense? Oh, so- absolutely. I don't think you're going to see someone, and whether they realize it or not, who is as influential as Brigham Young is. You know, the, uh, I mean, who who in history is more influential than him? You could argue, okay, maybe, you know, the president at the time that Utah is a state, but he, he still doesn't have that impact. I mean, right. yeah, you, he changes polygamy, but, you know, that that's still not the same thing. Russell Nelson is the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint today. He's not going to, most unless something changes, he's not going to have the impact that Brigham Young does. And, uh, you know, Ezra Taft Benson, very, you know, notable for a number of reasons in, in Mormon history, you know, not as big a deal. What do you do? You know, uh, the one who's president, uh, cannot believe his, uh, his name just escaped me. Uh, who am I thinking of? Gordon B. Hinckley, you know, who's president for 12 years and, you know, he's probably one of the most notable, one of the most accessible presidents of the Mormon church in history. And he's on Larry King and everything. Uh, he is still not going to have the impact that Brigham Young does on the Latter-day Saint movement with, in all due respect. Sure. Sure. So it's, it maybe in, so in a, in a practical sense, then if we really want to understand Mormonism as it is today, as we said at the beginning, understanding Brigham is kind of the way to do that. Well, yeah, and I mean, if even just for the fact that he's president longer than anybody. Sure. Uh, and remember, president for them is prophet too. President for us is God we elect every three years. President for them is a living prophet among the people. Right, right. So. Okay. Okay, Willie. I think, I think we had an excellent discussion of Brigham. I'm looking forward to talking about Mormon doctrine more specifically yeah. and Hopefully we'll do that, you know, before the next 1,500 years is up. Right. Well, and remember, this is all building up to, you have to understand this to understand how Mormon doctrine develops. And plus, I just like talking about it. So, (laughs) all right. Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you and God bless. I am more afraid that this people have so much confidence in their leaders that they will not inquire for themselves of God whether they are led by Him. I am fearful they settle down in a state of blind self-security, trusting their eternal destiny in the hands of their leaders with a reckless confidence that in itself would thwart the purposes of God and their salvation and weaken that influence they could give to their leaders. Did they know for themselves, by the revelations of Jesus, that they are led in the right way? Let every man and woman know by the whispering of the Spirit of God to themselves, whether their leaders are walking in the paths the Lord dictates or not. This has been my exhortation continually. Brigham Young, Journal of Discourses, January 12, 1862.